In way of introduction, I just want to remind you once again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's important to reiterate that there are five overarching truths, large concepts about the story of Joseph essential to your understanding of his particular plight. We'll run through them very quickly. One, from the very beginning of his story, it was clear God had a plan, a very important plan for his life. Two, a portion of that plan was revealed to Joseph when he was a teenager. Before his story even gets going, God had revealed through two specific dreams some of what his future held. Three, regardless of whatever would transpire in his life, Joseph was always, and this is so important, he was always continually loved by his father. Not just his earthly father, Jacob, but his heavenly father, which is important to keep in mind, for it's also undeniable that for God's sovereign will specifically yielded incredible suffering. We've already seen how Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but fifth, in addition to suffering, we see that Joseph's faithfulness and his obedience to God end up being the very reason that his suffering often continued and often increased. We saw that as he ends up being sent to the king's prison. Now, before we dive into Genesis 41, let's just set a little bit of context. Let's set the stage. While a slave in the home of Potiphar, Joseph, he did something noble, something godly, something admirable. He resisted the sexual advances of his master's wife. Sadly, though, his honor was reciprocated with slander. Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape, leading to a completely innocent man, Joseph, being sent to the king's prison. And yet we read that through it all, the Lord was with him. Though a lesser man would have found such a tragic turn of, of events due cause for a little bit of sulking, we don't find this attitude within Joseph at all. Not only... In his disappointments, does he remain upbeat? But he wisely decides to find purpose in his plight. We looked at this last Sunday. Because of his willingness to serve his fellow prisoners. As a, as a prisoner himself, serving the prisoners. In addition to God's blessings, the keeper of the prison ends up promoting Joseph and trusting in him with all of the comings and goings of prison life. And it's this position that eventually affords Joseph the opportunity to minister to two specific prisoners, two individuals, the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. They're in prison because the text told us they've done something to offend and anger Pharaoh, the king. Well, according to Genesis 40, one night, both of these men end up having a dream, two separate dreams, very similar. Joseph ends up the next morning providing the interpretation. Though... The baker's dream indicated he was going to be executed in three days. Knowing that the butler would soon be restored, Joseph makes an interesting request. Before we get to chapter 41, just look back to chapter 40, specifically verses 14 and 15. For Joseph tells the butler, he says, Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. 
and make mention of me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this house, for indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. dungeon. Joseph, knowing the butler will be restored back to his position in the house of Pharaoh, he's like, bro, I've done you a salad, you know? Remember me. We're pals. Keep me in mind. Get me out of this place. However, the chapter closes telling us that the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Which sets the stage for verse 1 of chapter 41, for it came to pass at the end of two full years. Just let that settle for a minute. Like, imagine what that must have been like for Joseph. I have no doubt that when the butler was restored, as Joseph's interpretation of his dream stated, that Joseph is convinced, yes, I finally caught in a break. I imagine that Joseph returns to his cell. He prepares for his soon release. Imagine, put yourself in his situation, when one day turns to two. Ah, no big deal. I mean, the butler's got things to do. But then imagine when two days grow into a week. Well, still, I mean, he's got to be settling. Eventually, he'll remember just getting some ducks in a row. You can imagine Joseph's thinking, but then what about when a, when a week ends up becoming a month? And when a month morphs into several? Like at what point does Joseph resign himself to the reality the butler's forgotten him, and no one is coming to get him out of this prison. The disappointment. Like, really think about that. The disappointment he must have experienced, coupled with the fact that, I mean, he had been good to the butler, right? He had ministered to him, proven to be a genuine friend, had served him, had demonstrated real kindness for the butler, Joseph? Joseph had been a conduit of God's blessings. Why hadn't any of these things been reciprocated? Why had he been forgotten? What had he done to deserve such treatment? Why did the butler forget? Before we move on, I, I, I must ask, have you ever been forgotten? Have you poured your life your time and your energy and your efforts and to someone you loved who eventually then bailed. Someone that traded you in the very moment a perceived upgrade was available. Someone whose actions lacked any type of appreciation for the kindness that you'd shown. <laughs> I know I have. Oh, the disappointment and the hurt even the betrayal, how easily these emotions can sour further, right? But they can grow into bitterness, anger, ill will. As William M. Taylor observed, quote, men too often write the record of grudges in marble and of favors in water. Those whom we benefit have often very poor remembrance of our kindness. True words. Though for the next two years, 
Joseph would grapple daily with these real and these raw human emotions. Here's the truth about it all. The butler's amnesia was God's doing. It's a tough pill to swallow, but it's the reality. It was a divine forgetfulness. For if the butler had remembered Joseph and word had gotten and Joseph had been released, there is little doubt, what would Joseph have done? He would have hopped on the first camel out of town and been right back to his father's house in Canaan, back to his father. Joseph, if that had happened, would have never been there to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And I know what you're thinking. Well, if God's in control, Zach, if that's the case, then, then why did it take two years for Pharaoh to have the dream? I mean, wh why couldn't the butler get released, get back, that night Pharaoh has a dream, and the butler's like, yo, this is perfect. I was just about to tell you about a dream interpreter, dude, I met in prison. Why two years? I don't know. But I can say that as difficult as it is to accept, the reality is that God knew that Joseph, for whatever reason, still needed two more years in that prison to prepare him for the entire reason that God had led him into Egypt in the first place. If you'll indulge me, I want to ask one more relevant question. Who have you forgotten? Don't brush that over. Take a minute. I'll think about it. Like, who have you forgotten? Whose kindness have you glossed over? Who have you failed to follow up with, to call and check in on? Who still remains in the prison cell that you once co-occupied? You've been let out. You've moved on. You've experienced some healing, but who have you forgotten that's still there? The truth is that at some point in time, everyone has been forgotten, and everyone has forgotten. Well, verse 1, came to pass, the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke, well, he slept, and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain come up on one stock, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt, all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there were none, no one, who could interpret them for Pharaoh. At the end of two full years, Pharaoh has a dream. Technically speaking, Pharaoh has two dreams that possess a repetitive or identical meaning. They communicated the same thing. In the first dream, Pharaoh witnesses seven healthy cows 
come up out of the Nile River and begin grazing in the meadow. This is then followed by seven ugly and gaunt cows who emerge from the Nile as well and end up eating the first seven. Imagine you're dreaming that. I mean, that's a scene, gotten unhealthy cows eating healthy and plump. Like that's such a chippy scene, it could have come straight out of fear and loathing in Las Vegas. The second dream, just as trippy. Seven plump, good heads of grain end up being devoured by seven thin, blighted heads of grain by the, by the east wind. Both dreams. Seven good and healthy cows and heads of grain are devoured by seven thin, gaunt, unhealthy, fill in the blank. Weird dreams, right? Furthermore, in much the same way as we saw with the dreams of the butler and the baker, Pharaoh wakes up, right? He has these dreams, he wakes up, and we're told his spirit is troubled, indicating that Pharaoh perceives that these dreams, they're of some type of divine origin, meaning that somehow God is trying to communicate through these dreams something of critical importance. As such, Pharaoh immediately calls for the magicians, the wise men of Egypt, to come and provide him an interpretation. And yet we read that there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Well, verse 9, the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servant, put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office. He hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothes, and came to Pharaoh. Now, seeing that none of the wise men or the magicians of Egypt were able to interpret the dream, the chief butler not only remembers Joseph. Oh, dream. Wait a second. No interpreter. He has the epiphany. He presents Joseph as a remedy to Pharaoh's conundrum. In actuality, in recounting his own experiences with his dreams, and Joseph's uncanny ability to provide an accurate interpretation, the butler, we're told, acknowledges his faults. He's like, oh, no. How long has it been? And he pulls out his sundial. Oh, it's been two years. What a bummer. I hope he's not mad. He, he confesses his faults. He, he tells Pharaoh, basically, yeah, I was supposed to bring this up earlier, but now's as good a time as any. I know a guy that's good at interpreting dreams. He seems to be a good guy. Now imagine this particular day. Let's get back in Joseph's shoes for a minute. For starters, he's 30 years old. 30. After being sold into slavery around the age of 17 or 18, Joseph has spent the better part of a decade being a slave before then relegated to the king's prison terrible. Beyond that, his only hope, the butler, only hope of escape, well, that long ago dissipated. 
I mean, it's two years. Clearly, he's not going to be remembered at this juncture. Joseph. Joseph awoke that particular morning, as he had done every morning for the last decade. In spite of the brief reprieve of his own dreams, his eyes opened. And what did he see? A familiar cell. Any hope his circumstances may have magically changed overnight are once again dashed. His situation is inescapable. Joseph awakes to the same routine, same condition, the same disappointments. And yet, unknown to Joseph, as he begins to address the menial tasks of yet another day, trusting that God had a plan for it all when there was no evidence of such, the entire scene we just read has been playing itself out. You see, Joseph, as he goes about his work, is oblivious. He's oblivious that God has given Pharaoh a dream that night. He's oblivious to the reality that his name has been ringing out in the palace halls. Joseph has no clue that the butler just remembered him and that the most powerful man in the world was presently demanding an audience with him. He's oblivious to it all. Joseph, when he awoke that morning, he had no idea that that would be the last time, the last day, the last morning he would ever spend in that cell. That his suffering was about to come to an end. He had no clue that so many of his questions were about to be answered. Unbeknownst to Joseph, that day when he woke up in the same prison cell as so many days before would be the day that God's promises would finally come to fruition. You know, it's interesting that every monumental, life-altering event in Joseph's life occurred in one day. It took only one day for Joseph to go from being the favored son of his father to a slave in Egypt one day. It took one day for Joseph to go from being a trusted servant of Potiphar to an imprisoned convict one day. Now it would take but one day for Joseph to go from being a forgotten man to ascending to be the second most powerful man in all of the world. <laughs> the lesson, friend, never underestimate the power of today. For God only needs one day to change your life. I imagine as Joseph is going about his tasks in the dungeon, that he hears a commotion somewhere, probably the entryway of the prison. Word doesn't take long. It begins to spread that guards had been sent from none other than Pharaoh to retrieve a prisoner. I'm sure that Joseph's heart actually sinks when he hears that they've come for him. The scene, it's hectic. We're told they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. Joseph's not given an explanation. For all he knows, it's likely he's being taken to the gallows. That this is the end. He was in prison because he had been accused of rape. Imagine 
Joseph's surprise. When they hustle him past the gibbet and proceed to march him directly into the palace. Imagine the thoughts that must have been rushing through his head. Where is he going? What's going on? Imagine the confusion. When they shave his head and his beard, when he's given a shower and a fresh change of clothes, imagine the moment when the doors open and Joseph finds himself being led through a room filled with the most powerful men in all of Egypt. Then, to Joseph's great amazement, what happens? His name is announced before none other than Pharaoh. He's presented and he sees off to the side his old pal, the butler, probably smiling, probably saying, I'm so sorry. Well, verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is none who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat. They fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after, poor, very ugly, gaunt, such ugliness as I've never seen in all of the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate the first seven, the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had even eaten, for they were just as ugly as the beginning. So I woke up. Also I saw in my dream... And suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven heads withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years as well. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all of the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. As he'd done with the butler and the baker, Joseph, he listens intently to Pharaoh's dreams prior to providing the interpretation. In actuality, before he even gets to the specifics, Joseph affirms that Pharaoh was indeed correct in sensing that this was divine in nature, these dreams. He says, you look back, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do, adding later that, it was to, that what was to come was established by God and that God would bring it shortly to pass. In a sense, Joseph is telling Pharaoh that the dreams were revelatory, that God was revealing to him the future. And before we get to the specifics of these dreams, I do think it's interesting that Joseph tells Pharaoh that the dream was repeated twice. Why? Because it was established by God. That's fascinating. Like Joseph points 
to the repetition of the dream as being the certainty that it was going to happen. And what makes that mind-blowing to me is that he's saying that thinking back to himself, that 13 years ago, he had received not one, but two dreams about his future. He's saying, when God gives a dream twice, it's certain it will pass, even in his situation, when he has no clue or no evidence it would ever would. It's amazing, his faith here. You see, I'm kind of convinced that it's at kind of this moment. Joseph begins to arrange the, the pieces of the puzzle in such a sense that things are beginning to make a little more uh, sense, gaining a little clarity. Joseph is beginning to see that everything that he'd encountered was leading him to and preparing him for possibly this very moment. What was God revealing through these dreams? Well, the text is self-explanatory, but let me re recap it. God reveals to Pharaoh that seven years of plenty are going to be followed by seven years of famine. And this famine will be so bad that all of the plenty will be forgotten because this famine will deplete the land, or literally, it will consume the land. The famine will be so extreme, Joseph is saying, no one will be able to survive it. Now Joseph continues, verse 33. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land in the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will be in the land and that the land may not perish during the famine. What's most interesting about Joseph's counsel here is <laughs> that first, it's completely un unrelated to the interpretation. Like Joseph has been brought in to do what? To interpret the dream. That's his task. Joseph doesn't stop with just interpreting the dream. He's already finished that, and yet now he's providing some counsel. Additionally, note the counsel is unsolicited. No one's asking his opinion, and yet Joseph is just rolling. Here's the dream, here's the interpretation of the dream. I know that's what I'm here for, but let me give you some advice. Knowing what was on the horizon, that seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine, Joseph, he takes a bold initiative by advising Pharaoh that he needed to seriously prepare the nation for what was on, on the horizon. He tells the king that officers should be appointed to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land during the seven plentiful years to be specifically stored in the city so that the nation would be prepared to endure seven years of famine that would follow. Basically, Joseph suggests to Pharaoh two things. One, enact a 20% grain tax for the next seven years. Increase taxes. Yes, that's in the Bible. And two, select a discerning and wise man to oversee the project. One thing is very clear. Joseph, in hearing the dream and knowing the interpretation of the dream, Joseph knew that the stakes were high. 
Like Joseph realized that what God had just revealed was a matter of life and death. As a matter of fact, if Pharaoh rejected this revelation, if he resisted God's word, if Pharaoh failed to act appropriately, here was the reality. Egypt and everyone in it was going to die. No one would survive. It's likely Joseph, in taking this new bit of revelation and applying it in the context of what he knew from his own dreams, Joseph was probably equally aware that such a famine would jeopardize his own family back in Canaan as well. You see, Joseph's counsel, it reveals an interesting insight. While it's true that God was revealing to Pharaoh what the future held, Joseph knew that God was doing this for a reason. Yes, there was nothing that anyone, even Pharaoh, could do to stop this coming famine. In seven years, and for seven years, the famine would come and wreak havoc on the land. And yet, God was letting them know that he would also be providing seven years of plenty. And why was God letting them know this? To afford them ample time to get resources so that they could be saved. As a servant of God, Joseph. Joseph took it upon himself to do more than simply tell Pharaoh what God's word was saying. Joseph shoulders the responsibility to go one step further by explaining the appropriate application and response Pharaoh needed to have to such a revelation. You've gotten this word from God, but bro, you need to obey it. Let me apply what kind of response you should have, Pharaoh, to what God has just told you. God was literally warning of a coming tribulation but God was also providing a way of salvation. You see, for the world to be saved, Pharaoh. Pharaoh needed to be more than just a hearer of the word. Salvation was only possible if Pharaoh chose to act in faith based upon what he heard. Was it enough to hear Pharaoh needed to act. You see, if Pharaoh failed to act or procrastinated, the entire nation, including himself, were likely to perish. I hope you know. It's one thing to be given knowledge. An entirely another thing to act accordingly. As a matter of fact, according to the Proverbs, the fundamental difference between the wise man and the fool isn't the amount of knowledge a person possesses, but whether or not they correctly apply such knowledge to their lives. Please understand, knowing what God is saying is worthless if you're not willing to act upon it. In James chapter 1, the apostle says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and then continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Well, this one is blessed in what he does. And while that seems to be fairly cut and dry, the implications of this idea that you need to be a hearer, yes, but a doer for that revelation to have any impact in your life, the implications of this idea, that they go a little deeper. No man will be held accountable for failing to act on the knowledge that he didn't possess. Uh, let me repeat that. Hear doer, okay, this concept, meaning no man will be held accountable for failing to act on the knowledge he didn't possess. Instead, every man will be held to account for what he did with the knowledge he'd been given. What this means is the classic, I need to know more excuse will not be accepted by God for failing to act on what you did know. Here's so many people, I just, I just have these questions. I just need more answers. When the truth is that what they do know should change their lives. Pharaoh. I'm sure, all he's given is this dream. And he's got this Hebrew man telling him an interpretation. No doubt Pharaoh has all kinds of questions. Right? But you know what? Pharaoh knew enough to know exactly how he needed to respond. Verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. Probably had like 40-inch rims, spinners. And they cried before him, bow the knee. So Pharaoh set Joseph over all of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name zapnath paneah And then he gives him a wife, Azeneth, the daughter of Potferi priest of on now notice pharaoh's immediate reaction to joseph's counsel to the interpretation the revelation of god and his counsel does pharaoh drag his feet at all is there a procrastination he's like man i need to really mull this over it was no god gave a dream judgment was coming a famine was on the horizon and we need to act immediately <laughs> he even says looking at joseph 
to a room full of the most powerful men in Egypt. Can we find such a one as this? A man in whom is the Spirit of God? You see, the way in which Joseph handled himself was so godly, so noble, that even a pagan man like Pharaoh had to acknowledge the presence of the living God in his life. What Joseph said and how he behaved testified. Now, you can read too much into this observation that Pharaoh makes, this statement. Is there a man in which the Spirit of God... You can read into it thinking that the Holy Spirit resided in Joseph. But that's not true. The Holy Spirit did not reside in Joseph and would not reside in any man until the New Testament. There are instances of the Holy Spirit coming upon man, but not dwelling within man. It is an observation made by a pagan, a pagan king, Pharaoh. That said, what does make the statement noteworthy is that in the context of Joseph being a type of Jesus, which we're going to get into in the next few weeks, this is the first mention in all of Scripture of the Spirit of God residing in man. And I think that's noteworthy. You have to admit, this had been a strange day for Joseph, right? In one unexpected moment, he goes from the king's prison to the king's palace. Joseph finds himself ascending from the darkness of a dungeon to a position of immense power. The formal declaration of Pharaoh, coupled with the presentation of the ring and the, and the, the linens and the chains and the chariots, it indicated that Joseph had been promoted, appointed by Pharaoh to be the prime minister tasked with preparing Egypt for what was, what was coming. In addition, we're told Pharaoh gave Joseph Azanath, the daughter of Potpharah, priest of On, to be his wife. The name Potpharah literally means he who Ra gave, which makes sense as the southern city in Egypt known as On, was where the temple to the sun god, Ra, was located. This man, being the priest of Ra, from on, the fact that his daughter is given to Joseph, what this tells us is that not only is Pharaoh promoting, appointing Joseph to a position of power, but then there's a, a marriage to a very wealthy, influential family that kind of will give him the clout that he needs. Before we close... I want to read a section of Psalms 105 that deals with the same story. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. King David, writing, Moreover God called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach the elders wisdom. And considering this very section of Genesis, King David makes a couple of interesting observations. First, don't detach yourself from the real humanity that Joseph endured in the midst of all of his trying circumstances. David writes 
until the time that God's word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. In the Hebrew, this word tested, it was a term that goldsmiths used to describe the process of smelting or refining. See, the purpose of heating up a metal was to force the dross, the impurities within the metal, to rise to the top so it could be removed. The testing process was essential for making a metal stronger and therefore more useful in the hands of the smith. And in much the same way, what David is saying about Joseph is that every difficult experience that he encountered, every injustice, every iniquity, every disappointment, was part of God's plan for preparing him for what lay ahead. And how was Joseph tested, you might ask? Joseph was forced for a decade to trust God's word would come to pass even when his circumstances said otherwise. That is the essence of our faith, friend. You see, it's easy to trust God when life is filled with blessing. But true faith is formed when you have to hold fast to him in the darkest storm. Secondly, while David is clear that it was God who called for the famine to come into the land of Egypt, it's equally true, according to David, that it was for this reason that God sent Joseph. What a picture, right? God set the stage intentionally by which mankind would be destroyed unless they placed their faith in another man's interpretation of God's word. You see a picture playing itself out? These Egyptians had to trust that Joseph was first speaking the truth. That's what they had to first do. Two, then they had to trust that Joseph's plan for salvation was indeed trustworthy. They had to trust that the interpretation was true and what Joseph was saying was reality. Then they had to place their faith in him. You know, it's not an accident that Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to Zapnath Paneah. In the native language, this means treasury of the glorious rest, or literally the one who preserves all. Some go so far as to translate Joseph's name as literally being Savior. We know that Pharaoh believed Joseph. We know that he believed that Joseph's plan for saving Egypt was wise and true. But we know these things because Pharaoh was willing to call Joseph his savior and place his complete trust in that man. He says to him, you shall be ruler over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater. See, I've set you over all of the land of Egypt. And then David writes that Pharaoh made Joseph lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. Friend, Pharaoh, Pharaoh wasn't given all of the answers, was he? To his questions, no doubt. But he was given enough knowledge to know a great tribulation was coming that would destroy the world, that would destroy him 
And as such, Pharaoh responded accordingly by placing his complete faith in Joseph by entrusting, surrendering all to his care. You know, if you haven't picked up on it, that within this story, we see a picture of much larger realities. Like Joseph, Jesus, also, also warned of a coming tribulation that no man would be able to escape. Setting that aside, Jesus warned of a day when every man will face death and the judgment of God. It's a certainty that that event is on your horizon. No man can escape it. But you know what? That was not the end of Jesus' revelation. You see, like Joseph, Jesus also says, but there's a way to be saved. Yes, this is coming, but there's a way to prepare. John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The truth is that your decision is identical to the one that Pharaoh had to make. The matter, the matter we're discussing, like Joseph, is one of life and death. Tribulation is coming, friend. Death. But salvation is right in front of you. That there's a way. Do you believe that? And if you do, will you demonstrate genuine faith by accepting it, by surrendering all you are to Jesus' care? Just like Pharaoh with Joseph. Will you call Jesus Savior? Once again, the, well, I need to know more excuse will not be accepted by God for failing to act on what you do know. And because you're all attending this particular Bible study, I'm sorry, I've ruined it for you. Pharaoh. Friend, Pharaoh was given just a simple revelation. Death was coming. Joseph had a way they could be saved. Pharaoh knew enough to know he needed to respond. The question I close with this, it's, it's very simple. Will you? And so, Father, Lord, we...